0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings 6 and we'll read verses 8 through 23. Second Kings six verse eight. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he, went, so he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 34, stanza 6. Ex- since it's only a couple verses, I'll read them again so you may have them in your minds. Second Kings 6, verse 16 Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, once again we are faced with a passage of Scripture that forces us to think about questions that in our Western uh, materialistic secular culture we may not be used to thinking about and we may not be comfortable thinking about questions about angels and miracles and God's supernatural intervention in our lives, and in human affairs. When we're faced with texts like these, we're forced to deal with our assumptions about God, about the way that God works, about the way that the world works. Last week, we we looked at this in connection with, let's say, small-scale miracles. We asked the question, Why does God intervene in miraculous ways with something as small and, and simple and mundane as an axe head? Is God just a show-off when he does things like this? What is it about stories like we read last week that make us feel like it's legend? Uh, And why are we uncomfortable with God doing that sort of thing? And and last week we saw that the way we answer that uh, comes down to what we believe about God. Uh, is, is He a God who intervenes in our affairs, who speaks to us, who breaks into our lives uh, so that we can see Him and, and hear Him and experience His presence? Or is He more like the God of the deists, a God who created us sometime long, long ago, but has since left everything else up to natural laws and, and natural processes? Uh, 200 years ago, a little more than 200 years ago, our culture, our Western culture, adopted that view of God. He exists, but he does not relate to this world. And we feel the effects of that in our culture, as well as within the church, even in the ways that we think. Well, we need to understand from the outset when we read a book like Kings, that that God, the God of the deists, Uh, Besides being a contradiction in himself, he is not the God of the Bible. Uh, Scripture is abundantly clear about this. God created us for his glory that we would know him, and, and as a result, he speaks to us. He intervenes in our world. He makes his hand known and seen and felt. And this is, of course, for us as Christians, most evident in the resurrection of Christ. A man rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, and it was the mighty work of God. And we see evidence for it in the, in the testimony of the, the 11 uh, disciples. The God of Scripture is a God who heals the sick, who sends angels who speaks through prophets, who who ultimately came down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, and then rose from the dead, and who now intervenes in our lives, in each of our lives. If we think it's too pedestrian of God to get his hands dirty in the affairs of human life, in in little things like recovering an axe head or in big things like sending armies of angels like we see in our text today, uh, then we need to recognize that's the God of the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. That is the God you meet here in Scripture. The kind of God who would send us Scripture, who would give us a book that we may read of Him and know Him. So let's consider the text before us. Verse 8 begins, interestingly, once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel. So we're not given an exact date here, just once is all we get to know. And it leaves all kinds of interesting questions. If we assume that the book of Kings is written in chronological order, it might not be. But if we assume that, uh, then we would reasonably assume that this happened sometime after Elisha had healed Naaman. Uh, So Elisha heals Naaman the Syrian, the captain of, or the commander of the army. And then the next story we read about is sometime when the, the army of Syria is invading Israel. Well, if that's the case, if it happened in that order, then it does raise some interesting questions, especially what happened to Naaman. Uh, It's hard to imagine that Naaman was leading an army against Elisha. So we don't know what the backstory may have been there. Maybe Naaman was killed in battle. Maybe his conversion led to conflicts with his king. He already alluded to some of those back in in chapter 5, so that he was eventually removed as commander. Maybe he was uh, forced to resign because he just couldn't bear to, to worship in the God of, of uh, the king of Syria. Uh, we don't know what happened to him. Maybe he even died of, of some other natural cause. In any case, this, this, all we know is this happened sometime during the life of Elisha and during the reign of Joram, the son of Ahab. That's the king of Israel. And so that gives us roughly a 12-year window. And all our text says is once. So sometime during those 12 years, a, a, an army from Syria uh, was, was performing raids in Israel. Now, tension and conflict with Syria was a constant reality throughout those 12 years. So that in itself is not surprising. So we, we have the king of Syria waging war against Israel. But verse 8 shows us that the, God was also working Behind the scenes. Every time the king of Syria would plan his attack, he'd decide where to set up camp or where to set up an ambush, Elisha would know about it and he would go and inform Joram, the king of Israel. And we should notice there also God's kindness, God's kindness to the king of Israel, to Joram, in spite of the fact that he was Ahab's son, and in spite of the fact that, according to chapter 3, he did evil. In the sight of the Lord. We see God's patience here with Joram. So Elisha would then inform Joram of the activities of the king of of, of the of Syria, and every time Joram would end up escaping the ambushes uh, that were set up for him. Verse 10 tells us this happened more than once or twice. So this was an ongoing occurrence. And after a number of times, understandably, the the king of Syria started to realize that something was up. And he suspected that one of his servants must have been a spy, must have been passing along information to the king of Israel. It's what he asks in verse 11. Uh, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And apparently one of his servants... Uh, knew what was up, which suggests that uh, the Syrians probably had their own spies in Israel as well. Somehow, one of these Syrian people knew that Elisha was passing secrets on to, to the king of Israel. So the king of Syria descends, decides to send this army to, to go and take down Elisha. You have to wonder, what was he thinking You know, if Elisha knows where you're setting up ambush, if Elisha knows the movements of your armies, uh, if Elisha can predict all your movements, it's probably going to be hard to take Elisha by surprise and and suddenly send an army and and capture him. But we should recognize this sort of thing fit into the worldview of, of, of the Syrians of that day. Uh, unlike us, they were not blind to spiritual realities, so it, it was not an entirely shocking thing that there was a prophet who understood, who, who saw things uh, that were happening uh, from a distance. They, they understood that prophets existed, uh, that prophets could have information in ways that, that cannot be explained rationally. In that way, they, they understood things that we in our day have difficulty understanding. But they also believed that this was all just pow- part of the power of the gods, and the gods' power was limited. Uh, they could be defeated if you had a good plan, and if your gods were, were helping you on your side. Uh, prophets, priests, and gods were all part of your, your army. They were part of your tools for warfare. So for the king of Syria, the natural thing to do was to take out the prophet in Israel. And it seemed like a a reasonable thing to be able to accomplish. Now, Elisha was in Dothan, it says, and that's about 10 kilometers north of Samaria, uh, the capital of Israel. So close to the heartland of Israel, uh, but, but a little bit in the direction of Syria. And verse 14 says, he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now, Dothan's a really small village, so it doesn't take much to surround it. Uh, When the servant of Elisha woke up that morning and went outside, he discovered that his city was surrounded by this army of horses and chariots. And he reacted the way that probably almost anybody would react. He Panicked. He said to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Now, as I read this, one of the questions that came to my mind is How would I have reacted if I had been Elisha's servant? How would you have reacted if you were Elisha's servant? How many of us would probably react the exact same way? Very few of us uh, know how to answer. That, that question, of course, because we haven't been through the same uh, circumstance, although our grandparents and our great-grandparents have. When the armies of Hitler uh, swept across Europe, many of them did suddenly find their village surrounded by great armies. How did they, how did they in that day react? We should recognize, you know, those days could happen again. China is on the way to becoming the world's greatest superpower, and unless Christ transforms that nation very quickly, uh, there may be very evil days ahead. We should recognize we could ourselves be in this sort of plight. Indeed, consider the plight even right now of many Christian brothers and sisters in China, who do have the experience of waking up and discovering that their homes are surrounded by, by great uh, forces of, of police and, and, uh, and members of the army. So how do we respond to overwhelming uh, enemies like these? What's amazing is Elisha's response, how calm and collected Elisha is. Verse 16, he says to his servant, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Where does that kind of answer come from? That kind of faith? Would we be prepared to respond with that kind of confidence and faith as Elisha did? Now we recognize, of course, God does not always deliver his people from earthly threats. Uh, Jesus told us to not fear those who can only kill the body, which does imply there will be times in God's providence when people will be able to kill our bodies. Uh, Sometimes that is God's purpose for us, for his glory and for our good, to be witnesses for him unto death. So you might say to Elisha, well, I have good reason to be afraid. There's a huge army around me and I have no promise. Remember, Elisha had no guarantee yet that God was going to deliver them from that army. Most of the 12 apostles were executed and thousands of early Christians and thousands, hundreds of thousands of Christians around the world today do face death at the hands of other people. On the other hand, that certainly isn't Uh, the only way it happens, and this isn't the only time neither in the Bible nor in Christian history that God has redeemed his people from death. But either way, whether God would save them or not, we should recognize that what Elisha says is plainly true. Those who are with us are more than those who are against us. In fact, Uh, As I mentioned, we don't even know that Elisha knew that God was going to save them. Uh, There's nothing that indicates that Elisha knew that. But Elisha knew what we so easily forget. That armies, mighty armies of angels do serve at God's command. Uh, Some of them might be here with us in church this very minute. And, And this wouldn't be the first time nor the last... That God does deliver his people from earthly threats through the mighty power of angels. So we want to ask ourselves, uh, do we live with the same kind of confidence that Elisha lived? Because we do have the same basis for confidence. And I'll show more later in this sermon. We have greater reason for confidence than Elisha did. In a few verses, uh, we see Elisha going to God in prayer, asking for that deliverance from God. But before he does that, Elisha prays first for his servant, the one who didn't have the eyes to see what he saw, uh, that that God would open his eyes to see reality for the way it is. Verse 17, he says, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Of course, there he's talking about his, his spiritual vision, his, his uh, physical eyes were obviously working just fine, but he was blind to the realities uh, that are at work in this world. Let me say something about angels. Scripture is abundantly clear that, uh, uh, that, uh, about the presence of angels in this world. Angels, according to Hebrews 1, are ministering spirits sent from God for the sake of the elect. So they are there to serve the people whom God has has chosen for himself. Now, as as spirits, they're not physical beings. Uh, We, as as human beings, are both body and spirit. We have a spiritual dimension that cannot be located in our body anywhere. Uh, We are body and spirit. Uh, we love we worship we desire we will all of those are spiritual realities you can't uh, you know take desire and put it under a microscope and examine it uh, as humans we live in the intersection between physical and, and spiritual dimensions in our country our culture is is obsessed with the physical we live in a materialistic Culture uh, to the point that much of our culture rejects the idea of spirituality altogether, that uh, they don't believe in a spiritual world. Uh, it's a strange thing, of course, considering that we work every day with spiritual uh, realities like good and evil and love and hatred, things that we know to be real that you cannot ever see or examine because they are spiritual realities. But we should be aware then of the impact that the materialism of our culture does have on us. Uh, There are other cultures that think differently. Other cultures are obsessed with the spiritual. A car can't break down without there being a demon somewhere at work behind it, or a person cannot get sick without shamans needing to be called to cast out those those evil spirits that must have made the person sick. Uh, we might scorn such cultures as as primitive, uh, but we would be wrong to 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 do so uh, because it would it would only be our own culture's influence showing uh, within us. The truth is, they recognize what our culture often fails to see, that we do live in a spiritual world. Now, they may be wrong about there being a demon behind that car that broke down or behind that sickness, but they recognize that angels and demons exist, that spiritual powers are real. Uh, uh, They they may attribute too much to spiritual powers, uh, but they recognize that they are real, and we should as well. In fact, uh, many doctors, even in our Western world, uh, speak of things that cannot be explained in material terms. There's a book, uh, I don't recall the author, but the, the book is called The People of the Lie, and it's written by a psychologist, a secular psychologist, not, a, not even a believer in God, um, who, who comes to the conclusion that spiritual forces are real and are at work in the world just based on the work uh, that he has done. Scripture is, as I said, abundantly clear about these realities. There is a spiritual dimension to our world. And you see that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament equally. Uh, We've seen them already once in the book of Kings, the the presence of angels, when Elisha was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, uh, surrounded by horses and chariots of fire, some sort of angelic spiritual power. And we'll see them again as we keep working through the book of Kings. And, and it's good to recognize this is not just an Old Testament reality. Uh, an angel appeared to Zechariah the priest in Luke 1. An angel appeared to the Virgin Mary in, in Luke 2. Angels appeared to Je- in Jesus' ministry, uh, serving him and ministering to him. Uh, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter Uh, drew his sword to defend him uh, from the armed guard, Jesus told him, uh, Put your sword back. Do you not think that I could send from the Father twelve legions of angels? Jesus recognizes uh, the immense power that is at God's disposal. Angels appear at Jesus' tomb. An angel frees the the apostles from prison in Acts 5. Uh, An angel appears to the Gentile Cornelius. Uh, to, send, to tell him to send for the apostle Peter. Uh, an angel frees Peter from prison a second time in Acts 12. Uh, Paul, in his journey to Rome, encountered an angel along the way. When the ship had lost its way and the crew were beginning to despair, uh, Paul encounters this angel who tells him uh, that, that he will be preserved, that God still has purposes for him. Uh, The author to Hebrews also reminds us to be hospitable even to strangers because he says in this way, some have unknowingly hosted angels even in their homes. So there's nothing in Scripture, we should be clear on this, there's nothing in Scripture that tells us that God does not act this way anymore, that He no longer sends angels into our world In fact, uh, Scripture teaches that God continues to send his angels to minister to us. That's Hebrews 1. They are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of the elect. You talk to uh, Muslims, especially Muslims who have become Christians, and many of them will speak of dreams or visions or encounters with angels that God used in the process of them becoming uh, Christians. You talk to missionaries, including our own missionaries. I encourage you to ask our missionaries about their encounters, and many of them will tell you about encounters with angels. And many, many Christians throughout history, uh, and still today, have spoken about encounters with angels. I've certainly read of many such encounters. You, you read uh, Christian biographies, especially the biographies of missionaries, uh, John Patton's uh, biography, and, and you hear of encounters with angels. And I know of, of friends who've had encounters with angels, Christians who have been pulled out of danger, by angels who have been guided to places they need to go, by angels who've been surrounded by visible guards of angels in hours of danger. Some have seen angels in worship as they're worshiping with God's people, uh, and, and they can tell about it in great detail, describing the clothes, the apparel, uh, the whole appearance. Uh, there's nothing in Scripture, this is what I want to emphasize, that tells us that God does not work in this way. Uh, and I suspect that some of you have had encounters with angels or can speak about uh, things that you believe were spiritual interventions. That is not something we should be immediately suspect of uh, in, our, in our church. Now, of course, we should always be cautious when speaking of angels. The Apostle John warns us in, in 1 John 4, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit's to see whether they are from God. Or 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14 tells us that Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So just because someone has an encounter with an angel does not mean that whatever words that angel spoke must immediately be believed. They may also be demonic powers. And besides that, of course, there are people with with wild imaginations. There are also plain old liars. You'll see them on TV all the time. They'll make up stories purely for the financial profit. As a church, we should be discerning, but we should not dismiss encounters with angels. There's nothing in Scripture that tells us that God does not work in that way. We should recognize, then, that angels do inhabit our world. God continues to send them out to serve at his command for the sake of the church. Uh, just as he has in history, so he does today here and around the world. And moments like this one that we read about in, in 2 Kings 6, they're written for our encouragement that we would remember this, uh, that those who are with us are more than those who are against us, that mighty armies of angels do serve at God's command. If the day comes that our country finds itself at war with a power greater, stronger than us, or if our own government turns against us, as seems increasingly likely, uh, we will need to know this. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. In fact, one of the the most common names that God uses for himself in the Old Testament is the Lord of hosts. A host, in that context, is another word for an army. And, And you notice it's in the plural. So it's not just an army of angels, it's armies of angels that serve at God's command. Now, the word angel itself, it comes from the Greek word that simply means messenger, and that's because that's what angels are. They are God's messengers, servants who do his bidding. In the Bible, we often find angels carrying swords. Uh, we shouldn't think of them the way that you might see them in, in Hallmark cards as these, these cute little uh, chubby creatures uh, who, you know, who, who only charm you, uh, they, they are terrifying every time we find them in Scripture. They're fearsome, dangerous, frightening creatures. Uh, anytime that, that anyone encounters them in Scripture, the, the most common reaction by far is for a person to fall on their face with fear and trembling. Uh, we also recognize in Scripture there are different orders of angels. Uh, the highest order is the seraphim, those who guard the throne of God. They're described in scripture as having six wings. Uh, the word seraphim, in fact, in, in Hebrew is, uh, it's, has its root in the word for fire. Uh, so th- they are the angels of fire, also known as the, the fiery ones. That would be the literal translation of seraphim. Uh, they are the fiery ones. Uh, and uh, And perhaps the angels that we see in our text are a class of these seraphim. You think of the the horses and chariots of fire that went up with Elisha. And under the seraphim, you have the the cherubim in in Scripture. These are powerful heavenly beings that are often seen armed with with swords. The Garden of Eden, for example, was guarded uh, by cherubim after Adam and Eve were, were sent out. And Scripture is filled with these testimonies of encounters with these angels or visions of these angels. And most of us probably will not have the privilege of seeing them with our eyes, but God's Word does clearly teach that this is the world in which we live. Uh, The books of Scripture are all all unanimous in that testimony. And, And perhaps one of the reasons that God doesn't Give us that vision as much as we might like is because we don't always need to see that God wants us to be relying first of all on his word. In Scripture, the privilege of seeing angels, if you consider the the encounters that are there in Scripture, it's given most often to saints who are in those moments of terrible trial and great uncertainty and fear, like you see Elisha and his servant. It's a gift that God gives to to have the vision, to see those hosts of angels. Uh, It's a gift that God gives to those whose lives are in peril, uh, but even if, if God does not give us, uh, we may long for that, uh, we may desire that, the opportunity to to see angels. Uh, even if God doesn't give us that opportunity uh, to see them with our eyes, nevertheless, we should see the world through the same eyes of faith. And that's what we see here in Elisha. Uh, we don't even know whether he himself saw those angels. He only prayed that the servant would see them, but he knew that they were there serving at God's command. If God is with us, and we know he is because of Christ, then even if we should see our nation at war uh, with a nation more powerful uh, than us, and even if our own government should turn against us, nevertheless, nevertheless it is true, more than we can fathom, that those who are with us are more than those who are against us. And every one of us will see this with our own eyes on the day that God calls us home to glory. Uh, Some of us sooner than you may know. And so let Elisha's prayer here for his servant be a prayer for ourselves, for each of us as well. That God would open our eyes to see things as they truly are. Even if not visibly, even if through the eyes of faith, that we would know that we live in that world. Uh, that knowledge uh, that, that we are loved and protected, guarded, uh, that's, that's the, 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 the knowledge that ruled Elisha's mind. That knowledge is life-transforming as well. It makes one fearless and ready to serve God even in the face of danger. Uh, That's why Elisha, whether or not he even saw the angels himself, uh, that's why he was able to respond to his servant, do not be afraid. It's a response of faith that's born out of the knowledge that we not only live in a spiritual world, but we live in a world that is ruled by God and that God is on our side. He is with us. It's the response of David in, in Psalm 27. In verse 3, he says, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. That needs to be our confidence as well. It's the confidence of faith. It's what David also teaches us in Psalm 34, which we sang earlier. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Now, that itself, when he speaks of the angel of the Lord, it it might be a reference to Christ himself. He is, uh, the angel of the Lord is a term that often uh, is associated with the Lord himself. Sometimes uh, you have these conversations where the angel of the Lord speaks, someone speaks back, and then it says in the next verse, and then God said, uh, and then the person speaks back. So, this angel of the Lord seems to be God himself. Uh, and, and so whether or not in that case it is the, it is the pre-incarnate Christ, uh, we should recognize that it does speak to the, the, the Lord of the angels. And, and this is the reality for us as Christians. Christ is the Lord of all the angels. Isn't that Hebrews 1? It spends an entire chapter speaking of how the Son is greater than all the angels. And as, as I read this, one, one thing that uh, stands out to me is that you see in Elisha, uh, part of the reason for this confidence that he has, this, this knowledge, this sure, uh, sure knowledge that he has of the presence of these angels, is that Elisha is also a man of prayer. You see it several times throughout this chapter and really throughout his ministry. And there's a connection between Elisha being a man of prayer and Elisha having this this knowledge of of the the hosts of angels around him. We see Elisha's posture of prayer throughout this this chapter. He first prays that God would open the eyes of the servant. Then he prays that God would strike the Syrian army with blindness, um, and that blindness was was probably not uh, like a total darkness, but more of a dazed confusion, uh, because evidently they could see well enough to follow Elisha on all of their, their horses and chariots. And then when they arrived in Samaria, Elisha prayed again that God would open their eyes, that they would see. So you see Elisha's constant uh, in, uh, dialogue with God, his constant prayer before God that also enables him to, to have the vision and confidence uh, that he has. Now, uh, when when they did arrive in, in Samaria, the, the, their eyes were opened in answer to Elisha's prayer, and this army realized they were in very serious trouble. The king of Israel asked Elisha whether he should draw his sword and, and kill them there on the spot. And if you remember from several chapters back in, in 1 Kings 20, a similar incident happened there. Uh, when God gave the Syrian army into the the hands of Ahab, the king of Israel. And in that story, Ahab wanted to show mercy, and Ahab was actually punished for it. So maybe it shouldn't surprise us that his son, Jehoram, now has the sense to at least ask the prophet. It's a good thing uh, that he did. And so he asked Elisha, should I kill them? But now it makes Elisha's response all the more surprising, because here Elisha says, No, would you kill those whom you have taken captive? Now, we might accuse God of being a little inconsistent in in this story, but here's the important thing. Elisha, or Jehoram, learned the sense to ask God before acting. And that was the issue back in 1 Kings chapter 20. Ahab thought that it was his victory, and so he decided he would extend mercy. Jehoram now recognizes this is God's victory, and so it's God's decision. I will be ruled by God's word. Here, at least, Jehoram does something right. And and so Elisha tells him uh, that in this case, God would have him show mercy, and that's what he does. What we see in this text is that Elisha has this deep, close relationship with God that through him, God speaks. He knows God's will, and, and he sees the world as God sees it. And that's what he prays for his servants as well, that they too would be near enough to God that they would see the world as God sees it. I want to make some application for us as as Christians, and in, uh, let's say this in the first place. Uh, for us today as Christians, as those who belong to Christ, uh, it's doubly important that we have the eyes to see the world as God sees it. In the first place, we need to recognize that we are in a spiritual warfare, in a spiritual war. Uh, we, we recognize as Christians, Christ came not, not just to, to live a good life, to show an example uh, for us. Christ came to overthrow the powers of evil. And, and the Holy Spirit, too, poured out on, on the day of Pentecost, came to declare war against the spiritual powers that rule this world. Paul is very clear about this in Ephesians 6, verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are in a spiritual war. This is basic to our understanding of ourselves as Christians. Our our enemies are not just our enemies, uh, political enemies, those who would pass laws that make life more difficult for us or, or pass laws that are unjust. Yes, in one, on one level, they are our enemies, but we need to recognize we are in a spiritual war. To be a Christian is to stand on the battlefield, in the front lines of spiritual warfare. We should pray like we are in a spiritual war. And that war, it takes place both outside our homes, uh, in our workplace, in our politics, in everything else we do outside the homes, as well as inside our own homes, inside even our own hearts, where there is war taking place. And there too, we should pray. When we pray uh, for, for God's help, against temptation, for example, we should pray as people who are at war, where we struggle against demonic powers, demonic lies, uh, patterns of relating to God that were taught to us by Satan. Even though Christ lives in us and rules in us, nonetheless, we are at war. That war is not yet finished. Though Christ is victorious Yet the war here on earth is still ongoing. We know we will win uh, through Christ, but we will win through much struggle and warfare. We also want to recognize that here, Elisha's words are also true. Those who are with us are more than those who are against us. And they are even more true for us as Christians than they ever were for Elisha. When Christ uh, Christ came and died on the cross, he broke the power of sin. When he rose from the dead, he broke the power of death. And when he ascended, we saw this on Thursday, he declared victory over every spiritual power. And he came before the throne of God to receive all dominion in heaven and on earth. It's what he said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And Scripture is clear that now every spiritual power is subject to Christ. Take Colossians 2. In fact, the whole book of Colossians is devoted to this theme, Christ's preeminence over every other power. Uh, Colossians 2, verse 15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Christ has triumphed over every spiritual power. Now, some of us live with constant anxiety, uh, like this servant, an anxiety similar to this uh, servant's anxiety, even though the threats may be very different. We live in anxiety about our safety, about our well-being, against forces that are bigger than us, uh, that, that we feel might overpower us. Some of us also live in terror of Satan and, and demons and demonic powers, fear of, of the dark, uh, uh, almost paralysis. This is a reality even for many Christian uh, adults. It's not just a child's fear. Many of us live with terror. In fact, Psalm 91 speaks to that. It says, during the day you would fear the arrow and during the night you would fear the terrors of the night, but with God, you, you, uh, we do not fear those. That's what we're saying in, in uh, Psalm 91. And so we want to recognize the comfort that Elisha had, that those who are with us are more than those who are against us, is our comfort too, and it's a greater and surer comfort for us who are in Christ, because Christ has defeated the powers of darkness. They gave their worst they put up their strongest fight when Christ was here on earth. Satan himself tempting the Lord in the wilderness, doing all that he could to break the Lord's uh, will, and he did not win. Christ is victorious over the powers of darkness. And that means nothing can ever separate us from the love of Christ. That's how Paul finishes uh, Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword, or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else. In all creation, all creation, both earthly, physical, and spiritual, and heavenly, will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Satan cannot separate us from Christ. When we live in terror, when we experience terror, when we feel the, the, the weight of Satan's power over us or resistance against us, we can tell ourselves, Satan cannot have me. He is, I am not his. I do not belong to him. He has no power over me because I belong to Christ. He can do his worst and still will not have us. Because Christ has bought us with his blood, we can say even more confidently than Elisha, Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, uh, dwell on these truths and live out of these truths with the same kind of faith that you'll see in Elisha. Consider the testimony of Scripture. Consider the witnesses of many Christians uh, throughout history to whom God has given that privilege of seeing His power through angels at work. And then consider that the God of those mighty hosts of angels is our God, your God, through Christ. And because of Christ, will not let you go. He may bring you through trials. He may put you up against the powers of Satan. But he will not let go of you. And he will not let them have victory over you. In the end, God's promise is for you. And you will see and know God's protection even if it is like so many Christians who have had to face death and had their lives taken from them. In the hour of death, when they, breath, when they breathe their last moments in dark dungeons or torture chambers, they open their eyes to see hosts of angels coming to take them into the glory of God. And there, no enemy, not even Satan, can ever reach them again. It's why the anonymous uh, uh, psalmist makes such bold claims as he makes in Psalm 91. uh, Because you've made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot. Against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. It's not because this psalmist was naive about the realities of life. He had experienced persecution and warfare when he wrote those things. Uh, He knew what it was like to suffer. But he wrote this because he had his eyes set on eternity. Though they may afflict you, they will not have victory over you. the statement that he makes in verse 1 is just as true now as it ever was then. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty, and he will do so forever. Amen. Let's respond by singing from...